Good morning. It's really terrific to see you. Um, happy New Year. I think I can still say that two weeks in. Well, Happy New Year. Thank you very much. You know, New Year is a time of the year where a lot of us do a little bit of reflecting. And personally, I've been doing a little bit of that too. And I have to be honest with you, I'm feeling just super encouraged um, about our church, what's happening, the direction we're heading. I, I know last week I mentioned we were talking about purpose, and so I shared some of the things that have been going on over the fall. And the more I think about it, the bigger the smile gets on my face, <laughs> the more encouraged I am. And I've also, along with that, been reflecting on something that a friend of mine said. We met for breakfast and coffee a couple of weeks ago. He's a buddy of mine from the neighborhood. And we just sat down and we were chatting, and he was actually sharing uh, some of his frustrations about some other folks in his life that he felt were stuck, that they were in ruts and they kept making the same decisions. They weren't really getting anywhere in life. And he just sort of looked up and he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, who's your team? As if to say, who are the people in their lives that are encouraging them or pushing them or calling them out when they need to or lifting them up when they fall down because they seem stuck? And he's like, who is their team? Who are the people around them? And that got me thinking about all of the things that have been happening in our church that are so encouraging. And I started to think, I don't really think I can take much credit for the very best things that happened this fall. You know, I, I don't know if, if, if you're, you're keeping up with things, but a few weeks ago we, we talked about this new thing called the Building It Together Legacy Challenge. It comes out of the Building It Together grant program, which comes out of the big fundraising we did to remodel this building. We set aside 10% of everything raised to, uh, you know, take the paint off the wall and uh, get this building up to code and everything like that. We took 10% to give away to good things happening in the community. Um, and that, by the way, wasn't my idea. Uh, but even so, uh, even so, like in the, the last few months, we've realized that in the past couple years, uh, our operating budget has shrunk by 25%. So it's down $65,000 from two years ago. And we thought, oh no, we, have, we should do something about this. So we launched this thing called the Building It Together Legacy Challenge, which is simply, uh, we have uh, an amount that we've set as the budget for each quarter in terms of what we expect as revenue. And if we can beat that by $10,000 each quarter, 5000 of that is going to go right into the Building It Together grant program so that we can continue to give away money. And the other, whatever's left over after that, is going to go into building the infrastructure and supporting the ministries of our church so we can get back to a sustainable place where we were. So all that is to say we're in the midst of that first quarter. And man, if we aren't ahead of the pace to hit the $10,000 over um, our projected revenue budget already. I was like, but you know what? That wasn't my idea. I thought back to uh, the conference that we did at the very end of the summer, which sort of launched us into the whole fall, which I thought was a tremendous success. Now, that actually was my idea. (laughs) But as I look back at the elements of that event that are the most encouraging to me, that went the best, I didn't have much to do with any of them. So, for example, the promotion of the thing, getting the word out about it, the new website that was built so that people could find out about it, the the social media presence that we had, that wasn't me at all. That was Becca's in. The kids' programs that we had 
If you had a kid that came to the conference, you know it was much more than babysitting. And they were doing all sorts of uh, creative things, including making their own personal pizzas. That's the one that stands out to me because I thought that was so cool. But I didn't have anything to do with that. Melissa Min did all of that. And then organizing the whole thing. Um, And I feel like that conference, if you came to it, felt like you were going to a conference that was being put on by a church that was three, four, or five times the size of ours. It was so well run. It was so well organized. All these little moments were like, oh, that was very thoughtful. All that thoughtfulness was Devin Sioma. It wasn't me. And the Thanksgiving outreach that I mentioned a couple weeks ago, where we were expecting to help 30 families um, who were in need have the, the, the attributes, the accoutrement, the, the turkey and the stuffing and things like that for Thanksgiving, well, we were expecting 30 families, and almost literally overnight, we realized we had, had 150 families, and the whole church came together, and it was a huge moment, I think, that's a highlight of the last 10 years for me. And I look back at that, and I think about the email that I sent out um, to ask the members to jump in, and, and I realized the best ideas in that email weren't mine. And I think about how the event happened and who ran it, and I think about Leah Torek running the whole thing. I think about... Uh, the Richardson supporting her, and I realized I, did, I just sort of showed up. And I started thinking and looking back, and this realization hit me that the reason I'm feeling so good about how things are going in the church right now has very little actually to do with me and very much to do with the people around me. Team. Team. This summer, I've mentioned this a few times because it had such a big impact on me, so forgive me, but this summer, I I had a little personal research project that I did where I interviewed people around the city of Philadelphia, and I asked questions about how they connected spiritually, how they connected to community, how they connected to purpose. There are two themes that came up again and again and again. The first was almost every person I talked to shared with me almost a little bit of angst about how they really wanted their life to count for something, what they did with their career, how they spent their time to make a difference in the community around them, to make the world a better place. But they kind of felt like they weren't. And the second thing that I noticed is that uh, almost every people, 11 interviews in a row, people told me, I don't feel connected to community at all. I might have a boyfriend, I might be married to someone, I might have family, but in terms of a community of friends I feel like is legitimate, Like, that's not happening in my life. And as I reflected on those two things, I've started to wonder if that's not coincidental, but rather if those two things are actually related, if they kind of work together. And I wonder if part of the reason that we often lack a sense of purpose is that we're disconnected from people. And at the same time, I wonder if part of the reason that we are disconnected from other people is that we aren't working towards something important together with other people. Team. What if being a part of a team is essential to experiencing a purposeful and and connected life? And that question, and really, to be honest, that belief is the motivation for the series we're starting today, which is called Team, Unlocking a Life of Purpose Together. We're going to explore just those themes, the importance of team, why it's important, why it matters, what are the elements of team that make it healthy and helpful. 
And we're starting today by looking at how team is an essential part of God meeting our most basic and our deepest needs. That's where we're going to start today. We've got four more weeks after this. We're going to talk about a lot of interesting things. We're going to start today about how God uses team to meet our deepest needs. You ready for that? Yeah. All right, let's do it. This is Mark chapter two. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The first 12 verses, it says this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come and they gathered in such a large, in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, to set the stage for today's talk, I think it can be helpful. That's a crazy story, isn't it? I haven't said a thing about it, but I bet in your minds right now, there's so many elements of that that are so intriguing and engaging. These people bringing their friend to Jesus, they're breaking through roofs. There's this crazy miracle. People are getting angry about it. Other people are celebrating. That's fantastic. So, but to set the stage for today's talk, I think it can be helpful to understand just a little bit of the background of this passage, of this whole story, this episode, if you will. So Jesus has just started his ministry. This is the second chapter of the story of Jesus' life as told by Mark. So we're only in chapter two, yet already we have all of these people coming. They've heard about him. The word about Jesus is spreading. And so the story starts, and it's almost like an account of how popular Jesus is and what a big deal he's becoming, and all these people are coming around. And into this picture uh, come these five friends, one's paralyzed and four carrying him. And they bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus in, I think it's fair to say, an unorthodox way. And then Mark makes one comment that I think completely changes where this passage is going. It goes from the look how popular Jesus is to, wow, this is what it's all about. Mark writes this, when Jesus saw their faith, and this phrase sends the story, which had just been about how Jesus was popular, in a totally different direction. Some people are offended, others are amazed, but certainly a lot of lives get changed really fast. And in this phrase, I think we can learn about three things that team helps us address. A practical need, a spiritual need, and a deeper need. Let's look at the first, the practical need. And this is something that I think most of you can relate with, and that is that sometimes we all need a lift. That's the practical need. So Mark writes, when Jesus saw their faith. So the word saw, I think, is very significant. 
A lot of times we think of faith as something that's kind of an internal thing for us. It's on the inside. It's what we feel. It's what we believe. It's under the surface. Something that's kind of intangible. It can't really be grasped. It just is. But Mark says that Jesus saw their faith. He identified it. He recognized it. I think their faith was something that could be seen. Now, you might think, well, Jesus, you know, he has this ability. You even see it in this story where you can kind of see into people's hearts, right? So there's this thing that Jesus does where he reads people's hearts almost. It's, a, it's like an open book to him sometimes. And he could see their faith that way. I'm sure that's true, except that the action of what happens in this story makes me think that Jesus actually literally saw their faith. So imagine the scene from Jesus' point of view. So you're right in the middle of preaching this awesome sermon, right? People are gathered around. They're hanging on your every word. You're in the zone. Okay, just put yourself in that position. Say you're standing here right now, okay? You're, you're, you're like where I am except you're in the zone, okay? Let's not say I'm in the zone, but you're in the zone, okay? And people are gathered around. They're hanging on every word. And then all of a sudden... Just a little bit of dirt sort of lands on your shoulder and bounces off. It's like, all right, well, you keep going. People are still with you. And all of a sudden, a little bit more dirt. And then thatch. Or if you're here, there's like a little piece of glass breaks through. And this little thing to keep the light out, like, starts to tear a little bit. And next thing you know, it's not just a little dirt. It's not just a little crash. All the glass comes crashing down all around you. And there's a giant hole, and this whole thing is ripped in half. And then two dudes jump through the roof, land in front of you. You're not preaching anymore. You have stopped because you're like brushing the glass out of your hair. Two dudes jump through the roof, and then another guy falls from the sky, and they catch him, and they lay him down right at your feet and look at you like, okay, here we are. I think these are a lot of things that Jesus could see. I don't think Jesus was looking in their hearts and saying, maybe he was doing that too, but, oh, I can see these people who just walked through the door peaceably with a cup of coffee in their hand, having just put just the right amount of cream and sugar in there and sat down pleasantly. No, these people broke through the roof, dropped a man through a hole, caught him, and then looked at Jesus. He saw their faith. It was as tangible and as practical and as solid as this floor is beneath your feet and that chair is beneath you and that cup of coffee that you're drinking right now. It had taste, flavor, senses. It was practical. It was in your face, literally. These four gentlemen, this team, were convinced that Jesus could help their friend. So they picked him up, a literal action, determined to carry him to Jesus. And then when they couldn't get through, they refused to quit. They climbed on the roof, banging a hole through there and lowering their friend. These are all actions. These are all things you can see. They're all things they did with their hands and their feet. Faithful friendship. A good team is super practical. It's not theoretical. It can be seen. It's active. It's persistent. It doesn't give up on a person when the way seems hopeless. It bangs on real doors. It knocks through real walls. It risks real embarrassment to lift a teammate up when he or she's down. 
the paralyzed man never makes it into the presence of Jesus without the practical actions that Jesus saw. He couldn't get there alone. He needed his friends to practically encourage him, practically pick him up, practically lower him through the roof. The ride you give, the treat that you bake, the note that you send, the call that you make, the time you take to help someone work on their budget, the visit you make, that meal you bring over, the job reference that you give. All of those practical actions lift people and sometimes even lift them into the presence of Jesus. The practical aspects are just one aspect here. There's also a spiritual need that's met. And I'm putting it this way. Spiritual power, if we pay attention, I think we can see is amplified on a team. Mark writes, when he saw their faith, plural pronoun, meaning the group of them. It doesn't say that Jesus saw the paralyzed man's faith. It says it saw, he saw their faith, the team, the five friends, the five amigos. He saw their faith. I think the idea here is that spiritual power is multiplied when it's shared. There's more. There's something that happens when people gather together. And this is very important. Because if you haven't experienced this, I'm sure you will. There are times in your life, I don't know where you're coming from today. Maybe this is where you are right now. Where whatever faith you have, it's like a shred. Life isn't easy. Very difficult things happen sometimes. And sometimes all you have It's just this this tiny little shred, or maybe you feel like you don't have any faith. Maybe you're on the front end of faith right now, wondering if any of this is even real. A funny thing happens when you put whatever little bit you have with someone else. There's a cumulative effect. What if we could add that shred of faith we have to someone else's ounce of faith? If we could add that to the bucket of faith that someone who maybe just experienced a personal renewal or saw a miracle in some way has. And then together, we all have much more faith than when we were alone. Even if on our own, we feel like we have very left very little left to offer. When we take that and put it with someone else, what you have can become so much more in the context or as part of a team. And this, I think, is one of the reasons that Jesus responds so positively to this group of friends and why in other places he's continually encouraging people to gather together, to group up, to team up, to share their faith with each other. In another place, Jesus says this again, Truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And we see in this parable 
this saying, this encouragement from Jesus actually lived out. It's like an enacted parable where these five people come together. There might have been one of them that really had faith. But that just did something in the other four. Enough to get them carrying their friend into the presence of Jesus. There's a special way that people can experience a living, alive Jesus that's unique to community and team. And there's a special way that Jesus responds to those who gather in his name. Your prayers are powerful. But they're more powerful when they're joined with the prayers of others. This is part of the reason we're here this morning. We're going to sing songs to Jesus together. We're going to pray together. We already have. You could do all of this quite well at home alone. You could hear a much better sermon than this by going online to some podcast and streaming some super awesome preacher from somewhere else in the world or Philadelphia. Who knows? You could do that alone. The reason you're here, I hope, is that there's an expectation that when I do it with other people, power is released in a different way than when I do it on my own. That Jesus is with me in a different way than when I'm on my own. That there's something about community, there's something about team that multiplies the presence of God in our midst. That God responds to differently. God can meet me on my own, but there's a whole other way that he can meet me when I'm with other people, when I'm on a team when I'm in community. And we see that in this passage. He responds to their faith. And Mark could have easily said his faith, referring to the paralyzed man or one of the gentlemen. I know this can be hard. Our lives are really busy. They're full of commitments that are important, and we need space for individual time. I'm not knocking that. But if we become isolated if our faith becomes simply our own personal expression, then we lose this dynamic of spiritual power. That's why we are organized in smaller communities that meet during the week called small groups. There are little team-ups, little teams that meet to help each other experience God and do life. They're awesome. A small group is the first place that I really experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit, personally, for the first time. The place I learned how to pray for other people, the place I've learned the most about God and been supported in that process. You know, we heard in announcements that um, most of our small groups, oddly enough, are taking the month of January off. That's good. Uh, It's good to take rest for our leaders to have a chance to take a breather. But let me start plugging now, because they're relaunching in February. You do three months on, one month off, three months on, one month off. And that's the best time to get in a group, because they're starting something new. New groups with a whole bunch of new people are getting started. So let me encourage you, take advantage of the opportunities that are coming up. We're going to be highlighting our small group leaders this month. We're going to make them stand up in front of you and smile and wave and embarrass them so that you can see who they are. And maybe you can meet them. The last week of this month, the 31st, they're going out to lunch just around town, totally casual, so that you can go out to lunch with them. It's like, get lunch with a small group leader day. And you can just go out to lunch, get a burrito. 
and chat and get to know them so that you can feel comfortable maybe when the group starts up again to come and check it out. It's worth it. We need teams in our lives. And our small groups are our teams. So we need this practical help that team can provide. We need the spiritual help that community can provide. But here's where I run the risk of undercutting everything I said. But listen to this. Friends aren't enough. And to be a good friend, be a good teammate, be part of a healthy community, we need to realize that even when we do these two things, we gather together, we practically help each other, we still have deeper needs. That's just the deepest need. We need even more than a lift, we need a savior. Now follow with me here. Here's what I'm talking about. You notice it, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. That's the last bit we're going to look at in this phrase. We looked at saw, we looked at there, now we're looking at faith. When Jesus saw their faith. One of these things that makes these guys such good friends is that they understood from the very beginning that what they had to offer, as important and as helpful as it was, wasn't enough for their paralyzed friend. He needed something more. If their practical help and the spiritual boost was enough for him, they could have just stayed home. There'd be no need to carry their friend to Jesus, but they were passionately aware that even their very best efforts would not be enough for him. So they actually point their paralyzed friend away from themselves and to Jesus. They don't expect to be everything their friend needs. They don't expect that they have everything that he's going to need in life. And this is one of the best things that teams can do for each other. They're aware of their limits. Their faith isn't in their team or in their community. Instead, it's directed at Jesus. Good friends get this. Good teams get this. We can be a lift to each other, and that's important, but we can't save each other. And we should expect our friends to lift us up. However, our friends are imperfect. And we should expect them even to lift us into the presence of God, but we see here we shouldn't expect our friends to be able to save us or heal us. We have deeper needs than we can meet for each other. And I think we see this powerfully illustrated in our story today. In this story, Jesus is most interested in the deepest needs of the people around him. Now, if you would just me just imagine being in the room with Jesus again. Two men, after breaking a hole in the roof, jump in, catch a third, the other two come down. And they place in front of Jesus a man who's paralyzed. Now, what do you think everyone is expecting at that moment? A healing, right? Or they're at least interested to see if Jesus will heal him or can. But what does Jesus do? He says this, son, your sins are forgiven. Not a word about the fact that he's paralyzed. Not a word about the fact that he had to be lowered through the roof by his friends because he can't walk. 
Jesus doesn't even mention it. He goes, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was there, (laughs) because this is me, I probably wouldn't think, well, thanks, Jesus, that's great. But can't you see what the real problem is here? This guy can't walk. But Jesus doesn't look at things the same way that we often do. Jesus isn't, look, Jesus isn't just looking to meet a real need in our lives. He's looking to meet the deepest need in our lives. The need that even a team, as great and as important as teams are, can't meet on its own. Let me, let me break it back a little bit here. Think if you're the paralyzed man. I think it would be quite possible that he was thinking, man, if only I could walk. That would change my whole life. And all the crap over here and all the stuff and all the pain that I feel in my life, if I could walk, that would just all go away. That would be what would do it. All the problems in my life would be solved if I didn't have to suffer through this disability. And I think really, if he was thinking that, there's some real truth to that. But there's also some truth to the fact that in a few months... When the initial euphoria of his physical healing wears off, he's still going to be the same person that he was that day. He's still going to have the same problems emotionally that he had before, the same things he's working on. And I think Jesus is saying, I know you can't walk. And that's a real problem. But there's a bigger problem here. Remember, Jesus can see into people's hearts. We see that in this passage. A deeper need that has to be addressed, or eventually you're going to be just as miserable or more so than you are now. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen is you get what you want, and you're the same person. But that's not how God is. And you can see in this passage, he won't just simply heal this man and let him leave thinking that his deepest need has been fulfilled. Instead, he pushes him and he pushes those listening. It's not just for him. By saying your sins are forgiven. There's a deeper need in this man's life. And I think there's a deeper need in the lives of all of us. That sometimes in our approach to Jesus, we can gloss over. You know, lots of times we want Jesus to fix something in our lives. So that we can get back to the business of taking care of ourselves. Jesus, fix this thing so I can get on with my life. I'm in debt, this one relationship. Can you just take care of that for me, thanks? And I can get back to what I'm doing. But Jesus isn't trying to get us, but Jesus is trying to get us to understand that what's broken in our lives usually goes much deeper than what we can handle on our own or what we can handle simply with the support of a few friends or community or even a great team. Um, There's a story. It's actually a children's novel. Maybe some of you have read it. It was written by C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, which became a big hit movie about 10 years ago or something like that. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I think it might even be in the same series, but I'm not a huge expert, so I don't know. But it centers around, at least part of the story centers around a young boy named Eustace, And Eustace is kind of an interesting kind of guy because Eustace hates everybody 
and everybody hates Eustace. I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but he, every, you know, people pick on him, and he gives it right back, and he's angry, and he has been mistreated. And one day, uh, the, the boat that they're all traveling on lands on an island, and he wanders off on his own because he doesn't like to be around the other kids. And he finds a cave that's full of jewels, like treasure, treasure trove, like Scrooge McDuck dancing around in the piles of gold coins. There's tons and tons and tons of jewels and treasure. And he thinks, finally, I've got enough money that I can show all those punks what it's all about. And he starts to plan how he's going to give it to all the people that he doesn't like and who don't like him. And as he's dreaming and scheming and laying back in the piles of gold coins, he falls asleep. He's not sure how long he sleeps, but when he wakes up, something's happened. He's transformed. He's transformed now into a dragon that has to guard all of the treasure. Now, there's a big problem with that. Because he's a dragon, he's so big that he can't fit on the boat anymore to leave the island. So now he's stuck on the island basically forever with his anger and his treasure alone. And he's big, and he's ugly, and he's trapped. Until one day, Aslan shows up. If you read these stories, Aslan is the lion who is the hero of all the stories. And Aslan leads him to a pool of water and tells him to undress. And undress, what he means is take the scales off, take that dragon skin off. So Eustace does. He like scrapes off a layer of scales, gets them all off. But looks in the water and he's still got more scales. So he scrapes off another one. And he just scrapes, 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 scrapes. You know, it's a little itchy, but he gets it off. That's it. But he can't get it off. Every time he scrapes one layer off, there's another layer of scales beneath him. So finally, in the end, the lion looks at him and says, you're going to have to let me go a lot deeper. And here's how Eustace tells the story later as he remembers it. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And when he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the, the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I turned into a boy again. Now, this is the type of work that only Jesus can do. You know, as a team, we're essential. We can support each other practically. We can pray. We can help each other, have the courage to deal with the real issues in our lives. These are all important. But ultimately, we point others away from ourselves and to Jesus. And that's what faith is. Jesus saw their faith. This is believing that our ultimate wish fulfillment is found in Jesus, that he's the surgeon adept enough 
to deal with our deepest needs, even our sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we, in the Bible, you say, if anyone lacks, let him or her ask, and it'll be given. Ask, it'll be given. Knock, the door will be open. We ask for the types of relationships and teams in our lives. That will do the things we see in this passage. That will fight for each other. That will carry each other. That will break through ceilings and walls for each other. And then know when to let go and trust you. And we pray that in the midst of those types of teams, that spiritual power would be amplified and multiplied and at work in our lives. Would you bless every small group in our church? Would you bless every team, every unit, formal or informal, of people gathering? Would you bless our hearts that we would get past, even our past hurts, to trust other people just a little bit if that's where we are. And I pray that every inch we move towards you, you would move a mile towards us. And we could experience this not just as an amazing story, but as a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.